0: From Austin,
1: welcome to episode two twenty. I don't know two, three, who knows four. Two twenty
2: four. That's what. We still oh, haven't found two twenty two. This is two twenty four.
1: We're just what we're just going to leave two twenty two just like out there, like in the upside down.
2: I mean, we'll save it for a special. Like you know, one day, one day we'll find episode two twenty two, and it'll be amazing. I don't
1: know about this, but no matter what, we're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. And it's still Monday evening, August fifteenth, two thousand and twenty two also known as the first day of orientation at Texas law. I'm Bobby Chesney.
2: I'm Steve Loddick, and Bobby, we are not alone.
1: <laughs> We're joined by two fantastic uh, students and former students. Um, that's right so uh,
2: so Ryan Brown um, is University of Texas school of Law class of twenty twenty three which you know, I'm not very good at math, but I think that makes him a, a 3L at least as of next Monday um, And Adam Goodrum University of Texas School of Law class of 22, which means he somehow got out um, And even of my federal courts class and somehow lived to tell the tale um, Adam and Ryan had either the the inspired idea or the really bad idea to bid um, Not just to bid but to win the bid for the <laughs> guest hosting slot on our podcast like four and a half years ago when the last TLF auction was. Um, and, you know, in normal NSL podcast speed, um, we have we have hurried them onto the show. So Ryan, Adam, guys, thank you for your patience. Um, thank you for bidding on, you know, us as a way to support Texas Law Fellowships. And, you know, why don't you guys say a little bit about yourselves? Ryan, you want to go first?
3: Sure. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys. We're uh, really excited to be here. There, There may have been a libation or two that, <laughs> uh inspired our, our purchase or, or at least uh, on my end i won't speak for adam but uh you know we're we're uh, really excited to be here uh, before law school i uh I, I grew up in houston went to undergrad in in connecticut at west Lane university go uh, cardinals yeah there you go a, a, a former Nestat guy too right,
1: yep. amherst, amherst. right?
3: yeah amherst go yeah, there go.
1: Is that like some kind of conference name
2: it is. No, it's yeah. like the 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 NESCAC, the New England small. It's not like some kind of conference it's Is only that only where the, the remaining twelve
1: teams are going?
2: It's only the <laughs> best conference in all of Division three athletics, Dean Chesney.
3: That's right. Sorry, Ryan. No, that's that's great. And as uh, about the last guy on the roster of the football team back there, uh, wow. I was uh, very very excited to talk a little NESCAC for a second. But uh, graduated, ended up uh, going into politics. Uh, worked on Democratic campaigns. I actually met Adam, I was reminded, uh, on the Clinton campaign uh, in 2016 on election night. Uh, and uh, when, that, when that finished up, uh, went home to Texas, worked on a couple of campaigns uh, here, and uh, then did some consulting while I figured out how to get off the campaign trail and, and uh, stumbled into Texas law where I find myself now.
1: Fantastic. Uh, what was your position on the team?
3: Uh, I was a defensive back.
1: So the Longhorns have had a few injuries. Do you have any eligibility left? <laughs> uh, I actually
3: <laughs> did have a year of eligibility left. Uh, it now has expired. <sighs> uh, but I assure you, uh, for the amount of playing time that I got uh, at Division Three Westland, UT does not need me.
1: I don't know. Paging
2: coach Sork. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, football and and Texas, like 6A high school football. I don't know about that. Texas 6A high school
1: football is something. (laughs) Right. Um, Adam, how about you?
0: Well, first, I have to say, I am. Oddly, getting comfortable with the idea of calling you Bobby and and Steve after years of, of <laughs> Dean and and Professor, but I'm very excited to do it. And in fact, my a bit of trivia here is that uh, Bobby and Steve, y'all spoke at an Electronic Frontier Foundation event way back in 2014. Wow! A few weeks before the launch of this podcast, and y'all teased it there. And so I have actually been uh, a listener of the podcast from episode one, and so it's been a fun wow. and long journey that somehow is even longer than my my three years in law school. That's um, insane.
1: Yeah, I don't even. Remember. Steve, do you remember where that event was? Adam, do you remember where was <laughs> it that was? In, it line? was,
0: you know, it was in one of the one L classrooms.
1: Holy cow! Okay, all right. Yeah, did, that's. Did, did Alex Sheriff Stani arrange that? That's, I think, maybe.
0: That it. might have been. Sounds that, that very, have been, yeah. very familiar and very likely.
1: No, that might have been well, the okay, era so of Alex. A you're a pre plank holder.
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> way, uh, an OG. Um, but I, um, I
1: like, Steve, I feel like we got to refund his tuition or something. Seriously, I mean,
2: Adam, Adam we, we might even have to share with Adam the the lost first episode that no one's ever heard. Oh, yeah,
1: no one's ever heard. I, we we got to re-listen to that. With you, the, uh, <laughs> maybe you, put the, that uh, up. Life life musical intro?
0: intro. The next TLF seriously. auction can be the secret episode. You get an NFT or something.
1: Have we ever revealed like what we uh, ripped off? We yes. didn't release. I, 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 th-
2: I think we have talked about how we were going to use the theme music from Greece. Yeah. Um,
1: campaign, until we did. Campaign.
2: Until 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 you did like thirty seconds of research and found out that we'd have to pay like how much did that cost? Dollars. Oh my lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Adam, you survived my federal courts class somehow. So I, I, I survived federal
0: courts, and I, and I stand by stand by my enthusiasm in recommending it to to Ryan. Um, so I. <laughs> Graduated uh, back in May, um, class of 2022. I, like Ryan, went to school in Connecticut. I was up at Yale, uh, graduated in 2010, um, and then spent the next 10 years or so in and out of politics and government. Um, I I will admit, uh, meeting Ryan on the Clinton campaign on election night um, is not something I necessarily remember quite clearly. Uh, That was a night where libations were also um concerned um but i've had a had a great career in politics and government and then decided to make the jump into the legal realm um and it's been pretty good so far i'll be sticking around austin which has been home now for eight and a half years uh and i'll be clerking for a judge here i should also jump in and say that anything i am offering in terms of uh any sort of analysis critiques thoughts um i speak only for myself and not for any governmental entity or organization
1: <laughs> always a wise uh, disclosure i love on stewart baker's podcast he always adds he also is not speaking for the the pets and relatives relatives <laughs> and um i think it's never more I, I, than with us
2: i i made the i made the really poor judgment call to go on c-span's washington journal this morning and someone tweeted in response to one of the one of the promos from C SPAN, is Vladik appearing in his personal capacity or on behalf of the University of Texas School of Law? And I'm like <laughs> Excuse like <laughs> here here to speak about the Espionage Act on behalf of the
1: University of Texas School of Law. Oh man. You know, if I had a dollar for every time someone has already in the very short teamship I've enjoyed, you know, reproached me for something somebody who's employed here, has said... Oh, I thought you were going to say, I was going to say, has reproached you for something I said specifically. <laughs> I'd be a rich man, Steve. <laughs> I've, I've gotten used to pointing out that, uh, you know, just because someone works here does not mean they're speaking with the institutional voice. But hey, that's... what. What, what is think. the
2: institutional voice?
1: It, has, it, must be, it must have like some Texas drawl. Well, it involves saying things like, we're fixing to start this podcast. And I guess our <laughs> long-suffering listeners are hoping we'll make good on that. So we've got, obviously, some mar lago palooza action to, to carry over from the last podcast. So now we've got a little more details to work with, and there's some really interesting... I would say fascinating nuggets? We're gonna we'll do an overview of the warrant and what it signifies. We'll we'll go through the charges that are referenced there, what they signify, stuff that's not included there, what their absence might signify. We'll talk about, um, you know, what we might call the the powers of ps- psychic uh, declassification and the prospects for that theory, the the prospects for standing rules of declass, and whether any of it even matters for some of these offenses. And then if we're still standing, we'll pivot to some uh, related stuff. We've got some Giuliani uh, information to work our way through, maybe some Lindsey Graham stuff. We've got the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul. We've got the uh, the Brittany Griner conviction and interesting questions about just how does it work legally when the State Department shows up at the Bureau of Prisons and says, hey, that guy's serving the... The 60 year sentence, uh, we need to borrow him for a prisoner transfer. Um, And then uh, we get to frivolity in the spirit of the day. We will talk about advice for 1Ls and we'll hear from people who are much closer to the scene than you and I, Steve. We'll let Adam and Ryan take the lead there.
2: Yeah, yeah, you made you made a bad mistake today. But Bobby made the mistake of letting me speak to the one L's like on the first day of yeah, orientation. I think it was, it was just it was just yeah. I mean, yeah. you should know better.
1: Well, I counterbalanced you. You were there with Judge Elrod, and uh, <laughs> and then I sat there nervously waiting for the whole thing to go through. And it, you know what? It was
0: great. It was fine. <laughs> and are you teaching CivPro Pro this semester?
1: I am
2: teaching so, CivPro this semester. Is, this
0: is probably a good dip some of their toes into the into the water before you throw them into the deep end.
2: Yeah, although, although Bobby did throw me a little bit under the bus on that, right? In his, a uh, in times, his at least. <laughs> but the, the first one was pretty was
1: pretty thorough. I, it was um, pretty funny. Uh, you, so I was reading Steve's uh, bio, and I was just going off of what was on your, you know, law school page. It's like Steve is an expert in constitutional law, national security law, military justice, federal courts. So he'll be teaching civil procedure. <laughs> 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 very quiet for a second. But Steve, of course, has taught civ pro. Many times it's still- before,
2: but it's been so long. It was before football, but
1: what can uh, you do? Right. I, I guess
2: I have to update my notes a little bit. Anyway. All right. So should we, shall we, shall we onto, onto Mar-a-Lago Palooza?
0: Yes.
1: Let's, uh, let's go there. Um, just,
0: okay, I just have to say before we do that, I mean, this new season of Trumplandia is really, they went all out. This has got everything and there's just so many layers and players in this round. It's, oh it's really something for the books.
2: Just when you know, just when you thought the writers had run out of material, right, Adam? It's like you know, and House of the Dragon is, lo- is what dropping on Sunday, so it's like they're oh, getting yeah. us ready, right? It's like the 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 segue series.
1: Many years ago in the Simpsons, they did a clip show. Uh, I don't know why, but at the end of the clip show, you know, they're showing just rehashed material from prior episodes. Then they do this funny original bit that's to a, it's a song number. And it's basically that the main uh, chorus is, sorry for the clip show, never fear, we've got stories for years. <laughs> and I think that's a little bit what we're dealing with uh, The in volume one is the Marlotte like Palooza. So here we've got from the U.S. District Court, Southern District of Florida, the, uh, the search warrant application has been unsealed, not the FBI agent, special agent affidavit that explained to the court the evidentiary basis therefore so people should understand like this isn't the full unveiling that is no surprise that that remains sealed but uh we do have some interesting materials in here so uh the the search warrant itself is a, is sort of a template type document it's not particularly interesting i don't think any any disagreement with the it's the attachment no but
2: i, I want to come back i want to come back to the affidavit but no keep going
1: okay so we'll talk about the affidavit in a minute turning to the attachments Um, You know, the the warrant, if people haven't looked at this, these warrant applications are template documents with little brief lines that you kind of pencil in the the information about the property, et cetera. Uh, When you actually have to really expand upon that as most search warrant applications do, you do attachments. So attachment A is almost always the property to be searched. Um, Nothing terribly interesting here. It describes the location of Mar-a-Lago. Um, I, I was a little curious to discover that the, the mansion has 58 bedrooms, 33 <laughs> bathrooms. That's a little sparse, <laughs> but whatever. Um, and that there is a lot, is lot a, of jack and jills. And there's a location there known as the 45 office. So, you know, of course there is. Um, <laughs> can, and can that I say what? Use, Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was just use the acronym FAPOTUS. Yes, F-POTUS. E-O-T-U-S. POTUS, <laughs> as most of you will know, is the uh, standard acronym for President of the United States. Obviously, this is former President of the United States, of the United States although mm-hmm. you know, it's not defined, and so that opens up the door for some for quality. <laughs> uh, but we won't go there necessarily. Tell, tell, other, your, tell,
2: your, tell your friend he has a funny name. He's not my <laughs> friend. He's my boss. And it's not his name. It's his acronym. It's his <laughs> title. Episode one. <laughs>
0: episode oh, one. Episode <laughs> one. There you go. That's, that's
2: a throwback. Proof. So so one of the many really stupid conspiracy theories about the warrant application that I think I just want to put out there is that, you know, they sort of cherry-picked which judge they applied to and that, you know, they if they really wanted to do this by the book, they would have gone to a district judge as opposed to a magistrate judge. Well, it's Can a I just well, kind of, kind of, just point out that Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure expressly says you have to go to a magistrate judge. There's no opportunity under Rule 41 to say, "Oh, but this case is important; we're going to a district judge." Like, okay. you know, if, if a magistrate judge is unavailable, you still don't go to a district judge. You go to a state judge. I mean, like, just
1: okay. All right. also B, property <laughs> to be seized. Um, so let's let's look at this kind of closely. It's all physical documents and records constituting evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of, aha, so this is where you get an important reveal. The charges enumerated here are by no means the ultimate outer boundaries of what could be the charges against somebody, but they're the ones that the FBI went into court attempting to show uh, probable cause to believe that the crime's actually been committed and that the evidence thereof would be found at Mar-a-Lago. So they were 18 U.S. Code, 793, 2071, and 1519. And in a minute, we'll come back to that, and we're going to unpack each of those, talk about what they signify, what they don't signify, what they require. Talk about talk about, we will talk about Yates. We'll uh, talk about Yates, but before we dive into this, let's just kind of note um, the, the more particular description here. Um, the first subpart calls for searching and seizing physical documents that have classification markings and any boxes or containers and all other contents in which such documents are located um, and other things stored with them then b separately information including communications in whatever form regarding There's an interesting phrase, regarding the retrieval, storage, or transmission of national defense information or classified material. Um, We'll come back to that distinction, y'all, in a moment. But just notice that the objects of concern here are articulated quite properly in two different ways. National defense information is one conceptual category that documents or information might be in. Classified material is an overlapping but non-coextensive circle. Do you guys agree? Is that the right way to think about it? All right so shaking heads on radio um, but those were nods i should say not shaking let
2: the record show that the that the other three participants in the podcast nodded their heads in the affirmative direction
1: your honor do you get it Did you know I, 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 yeah, My cousin right. vinny okay thank I, you yeah. We've been here all week um, so some people have drawn attention i think, I think to my
2: west wing get- pilot throwback was better just just yeah. to put that out there
1: there's nothing better than my cousin vinny reference um the, the language I just read about uh, looking to seize communications regarding retrieval storage and transmission of such information just notice that that goes to sort of the meta story of how did these documents come to be here and why are they still here after the the uh, naRA's request after the the Justice Department's request after the subpoena why are these things still happening so this is this is kind of getting at the uh, well, We've got perhaps a baseline level of offense of possible unlawful retention of these things. But then there's the question of, okay, but once you're on notice, how in the world is it that you're still holding on to these things after you've been requested? So that's interesting. Um, and you can imagine you know, lawyers being involved in those communications and that's a layer of the story that's had a little momentum. We'll talk about that when we get to it in a moment. Uh, then the third separate subpart any government or presidential records created between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021. Now that's broad. Like that's like really broad. That's any and all presidential records. Uh, And so some people have seized on that and said like, wait, they're just asking for all records. Well, I, 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 think, and Steve, tell me if you think this is right. This seems to be getting at the idea of if there's any other records, which you weren't supposed to take with you into private life, which is to say what we call presidential records, quite apart from classified stuff, um, we need to know what the deal with those are, and then last, any evidence of knowing alteration, destruction, or concealment of government or presidential records or documents with classification markers. Right. So, so, so so,
2: so, so Andrew McCarthy, who ought to know better, started this whole thing online about how this sounded like a general warrant, um, and, and I would just point folks, Oren Kerr, who knows, you know, has forgotten more Fourth Amendment case law in his life than define, I've ever even Find General heard.
1: Warrant for everybody.
2: Sorry. Uh, general Warrant is uh, a practice that was in vogue at the founding that the founders rebelled against, where basically you'd walk in the court and say, I want to go search this house for everything,
1: yeah. right? Evidence, I want to- Evidence of, a, of, a, of, a,
2: of- Of any criminal activity. Yeah right and so the idea was that you know those were pretextual it was like you know it wasn't like trying to find a needle in a haystack it was basically saying you know i want to go search the haystack just in case there's a
1: needle um can i can i I would i would maybe describe it a little bit more broad than that i would say that the the classic general warrant would be one where the uh the magistrate who's going to do the searching is saying that we know that there's smuggling going on which was the big issue that the british had with uh Massachusetts Bay Colony and uh, people like John Hancock and and uh, we don't know where the bad guys are putting all the evidence of this crime but we know it's happening so authorize us to go wherever our investigation may take us so the location is unspecified it could be used generally i think that sort of broad uh, uh, bl- broad blunderbuss type approach is is one of the many things that the founding generation uh, treated as uh, as an abuse by the crown
2: right so the you know so the notion is that any sort of general description like that in a search warrant is a general warrant um that's just not true um had a long thread on twitter talking about this supreme court case anderson which walks you know which which walks through how the law enforcement officers are allowed to basically have like any other information relating to the things we've already listed basically bobby it's like the eustem generis canon right of statu- no. of statutory interpretation no,
1: that's exactly right and and just to be clear like there's no way to characterize this as a general warrant it's highly particularized to mar lago for a set of predicated criminal offenses it where not only was it probable that the magistrate determined that that the evidence of that those offenses might be found there but indeed as we're now about to talk uh to review the, the receipt for property lists a bunch of stuff Right. where it certainly looks like on its face, they did indeed find such evidence. Yep. So the so, receipt of property is fascinating. Should we should we run through it a little bit? Uh, sure.
2: You want to do that before we do the statutes?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this will just round it off. So like they've got a bunch of enumerated items described at top-level generality. And some of it's just boxes labeled this and that. The first one out there, of all things, Executive Grant of Clemency, re Roger Jason Stone Jr. Number two, or well, 1A, info, re President of France? Can we pause there? What in the heck is going on with the info regarding the President of France? Can we get some speculation, fellows?
0: I wonder if that state yeah, visit, they didn't um, sufficiently cook a steak. Well done. I don't know. I'm very intrigued, though, by what that
1: kind of blowback. Ryan, you look like you're about to offer us a theory.
3: Well, I know whatever it is, it's not anything uh, related to national security. It's got to be something that is embarrassing about on on the president of France. To me, that that just seems like something that he thinks is funny more than.
1: Yeah, could
3: be.
2: But 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 something where it's not enough to actually know the thing where he wanted some kind of physical memorialization of it like that's that's what's awkward about I mean this is a point Bobby you were making before we came on like but it's it's we often have to remember the distinction between information and the physical document in which that information is memorialized so it's like what is it here
0: um,
2: you know, especially because I mean one one I think
0: about... one, one thing sorry that I think is also interesting in all of this is that President Trump was well known for consuming most of his information in media other than print. right? He he was not necessarily known as a reader um, for his briefers. So the fact that he hung hung on to this stuff, I think, just evidences that idea that this stuff, for whatever reason, held particular importance to him.
1: Let me pivot off that to raise a question that I think is a pretty serious question lurking in the background of all this. Um, And that is the question of, let's assume for the sake of argument that in fact there were offenses committed in in connection with the uh, some of the particular documents here. How clear do you guys think it is that that would be pinned ultimately on Donald J. Trump himself, as opposed to the people around him in his in his sort of post presidential office, his transition team, transition out team, etc. Bearing in mind, you know, it, it's certainly not the case that Trump was personally uh, carrying boxes in and out. Probably not personally stuffing them. One can imagine that some of this and 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 here one has to also imagine he might be happy to claim that, hey, look, I didn't know the particulars. These people on my team did this. And if it's really, really if it turns out it's unavoidably the case that this is wrongful, well that's their fault, not my fault. Do you think that's what the future might hold for this story?
3: It's hard to imagine that anyone would have acted on sending these documents to Trump without his direction. Uh, I I can't imagine the circumstances.
1: Well, Ryan, Um, what if he he says, though – what if he later says, look, I told them to send me stuff that I should keep. I didn't think they were going to take anything they weren't legally supposed to. I I think
2: at this point, I mean, it's worth stressing that – to me part of the story that's really interesting here is that the search didn't come out of the blue right that there was this months-long process where you know apparently national security officials in the biden administration had been seeking to recover some of these materials um right there's the sort of suggestion that this lawyer for president trump signed this affidavit, you know said we gave it all to you in june right and then they discovered that they hadn't um you know i, I guess it seems to me that the first there's still a lot we don't know. It seems like it's pretty obvious that President Trump was aware of at least a lot of this. Otherwise, the first thing he would have said is, I had no idea this was going on, right? Oh, but that um, requires admitting something wrongful was going on, and that but, guy never wants to admit anything. But, like but I mean, but listen, he's not shy about – I mean, listen, his the, he's gone and he's offered three completely inconsistent theories so far, right? He said the FBI planted some of this evidence. He said he declassified it all with this standing order – evidence of which we still haven't seen, right? And he said, and I think Kash Patel offered on his behalf this theory that he declassified it, you know, on the way out of office. Like, I mean, so I just, I think it's worth stressing that for all of the prevarications we've heard from President Trump, none of them have been, I had no idea this was going on.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a notable omission. It's interesting though, because I will predict for you that sooner or later that will start to become part of the story and that there, there may be problems of proof if any prosecutor is is having to go through the forensic task of showing Trump's specific awareness right. of particular documents, unless of course somebody from his team, who can't avoid that uh, proof, right. decides to flip on him, and
2: or unless there's video. I mean, right? I mean, there you know, there's one of the. I thought one of the items on the list was was that they recovered some surveillance videos, right, or some surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago. So, yeah. I, I, listen, I. I I think the piece without knowing what was actually in the materials, right? We really can only speculate about that piece of it. I think what what might be more profitable is to talk about the legal sides of this, including sure. right well, the three statutes well, and class and the and sort of the fight what to me is actually the distracting and irrelevant fight over classification
1: authority. So there's one last thing we didn't say about it. But we do know. Th- a little bit more than was already said because the interesting part and the important legally significant part isn't the president of france thing or reference to stone it's that a number of the the boxes are or the items were described as various or miscellaneous classified top secret documents confidential documents secret documents and at least one of these instances tssci documents um, top secret sensitive compartmentalized information documents are the most sensitive or among the most sensitive categories and so that hierarchy that goes from secret to top secret to tssci that's all there now nothing on here is is labeled as or indicated to be a nuclear secret which we're going to talk about in a minute and there's been some reporting talking about nuclear relevant materials there there's a difference between nuclear related and actual atomic energy act related q code type, two right. uh, clearance right. type stuff. There's a whole,
2: dis- right, there's a whole distinct classification regime, right, for material covered by the Atomic Energy Act, which and is also relevant to. And that matters
1: because the uh, classification regime there is a statutory creation uh, in contrast to some extent with the... Default. Wait, are
2: you saying that Congress has the authority in
1: some circumstances to regulate national security classification? Well, I'm certainly saying that the ability to say, well, the president decided it's not classified is a much tougher argument to make in the context of Atomic Energy Act, nu- certain nuclear secrets than okay. it is in the context of things that flow from the president's own original uh, classification authority. Indeed. Indeed. All right, so we've set the table. We don't know what these documents are. We don't know how... We don't know how worthy they are of these designations, but I think we can trust that indeed they had those markings on them. That much is clear. Okay. So now we need to go back to the referenced statutes. Um, fellas, which one do you want to talk about first?
2: Well, I'm going to go in numerical order. All
1: right. From the ground up, start with the one that, you know, the media cannot resist saying the espionage. Oh, is They're charging it with espionage. Folks. It's the name of the statute from which it originates. That doesn't mean that every element or every every offense that are in that bill each is itself a charge that requires elements of espionage in it. It's too bad, it's over inclusive. It, I think we're about to see why as, as we start to unpack this, that espionage is not the right framing for this, most likely. I mean, no, no, sure. no, it's mis- it's no, it's
2: mishandling no. national it's mishandling national defense information. Yeah. Um I mean, so Bobby, you've, you, we've joked before about how I, I made the early part of my career. I made my my sort of name writing about obscure statutes that never came up in any context, <laughs> and the right. Espionage Act was one of them.
0: <laughs> Section
1: seven ninety three. It's yeah, really so I, yeah. six or seven, depending on how you count them. Six or seven yeah. different. Offenses. It's seven.
2: It's seven different criminal offenses, yeah. um, and and that's just seven ninety three. I would include seven ninety four, seven ninety eight, and seventy a as part of the Espionage Act as well. Oh, but for
1: sure. So 793 um, cited yeah. here, but it doesn't tell us what subpart is the particular offense that uh, was that it was predicated upon. But I think we can infer pretty safely. Steve, what do you think it is?
2: I think it's either D or F and probably yes. All
1: right. You want to talk about, uh, talk about D? Then we'll talk yeah. about
2: it. So, so, so let me back up a second. So the Espionage Act, it, it's a – it, it, asks, it as the espionage, it's actually its informal name. It is not its formal name. Congress did not call this statute the Espionage Act when it enacted it in 1917, which is part of why it's a misnomer. Um, it really does create, Bobby, three... I mean, it's seven—it's literally seven offenses, but it's three distinct classes of offenses, right? One is classical espionage. Like, one is, you know, Julius, if not Ethel, Rosenberg stuff. Yes.
0: Um,
2: that, was a, that was a deep cut, by the way. Um on the Julius versus Ethel piece of the story, which is a whole, a whole thing. Um, the, um, so, right, no one, no one disputes a classical espionage is prohibited by the statute, that it's punishable by the statute. It might even be subject to the death penalty, although I think that might be in question today, whatever. Um, the second part, the second class of offenses within the statute um, is leaking, right? Is, is the wrongful, the unauthorized disclosure of national security information either that you do or don't have the right to possess, right? So D is about if you are lawfully in possession of the information, E is about if you're not. Either way, right, it's an offense to, you know, allow for the transmission, redistribution, whatever, of the information. Um, Bobby, not if you intend to harm the United States, but just so long as you know that your conduct is likely to harm the United States. So, you know, one of the critical things about the Espionage Act is the mens rea is just, you know, willfulness, right, Not, not intent.
1: That's Um, right. That's
2: right. And then the third category, and this is where I think the Espionage Act has come under the most scrutiny and has been subject to the most criticism, is how it could apply to third parties. Right. So if you read 793 E capaciously enough. Right. It would make it an offense not just to be the leaker, but it would make it an offense to be the leaky. That's right. You
1: receive it. You receive some leaked document. You're you're a New yes. York Times journalist. You get the classified document from the leaker. Now you're potentially subject to seven ninety-three E. I think right. I think you're right that E is not really in the picture here.
2: No, He's, no, no, no. But 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 I want but I say all of this just to say that much most of the controversy, right, about the sort of the Espionage Act in the in the early twenty tens, right, was really focused yeah. on this third universe, on the possibility. That, the, that E could be used to go after reporters, to go after, you know, what uh, Weissman and, and what's-his-face in the APAC case, Rosen and Weissman in the APAC case, right? Uh,
1: so no, that's right. You're yeah. right. So, so D and F as sort of leaker-focused, uh, when you talk about somebody who had access to begin with and then leaked it improperly, um, I agree that's not nearly as controversial.
2: Yeah. So, okay. So then there's... Then there's just sort of the, the sort of in-between leak category, right? The wrongful mishandling of national security information. And so there are two possible ways to do that, right? Under D, right? Retention of information um, when you've been asked to return it, right? Even if you're lawfully in possession of it, that's a violation, right? You cannot continue to hold on to national security information you were lawfully entitled to possess if you've been asked to return it by the government officer, right, who has, um, who has authority over the information. And then F is the gross negligence provision, which is like, you know, did you leave the safe open, right, and walk out of your office for 16 hours when you knew that 48 people were coming into the office? Like, you know, you can't sort of disclose national security information just through recklessness. Um, And so, Bobby, I think D and F are both at least based on our wild rampant speculation um, in the cards in this conversation. But I don't know if you guys feel differently.
1: Adam or Ryan, what do you think?
0: One of the things I'll note, and actually, you, Steve jogged my memory of reading a story today, um, speaking of a safe being open, and I just thought this was appropriate to throw in here. Um, during one of these, because let's also remember that uh, NARA got 15 boxes back in January or February of this year of documents. Um, and then I think after the June negotiation meeting, um, with the FBI, they suggested that a better lock be put on the door to the office where this stuff was being stored. And so I'm, I'm been sort of troubled by, um, the notion of just how both insecure Mar-a-Lago is, but also how not secure these documents may have been even in the office.
2: So, 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 so it's possible that – I mean, it's possible that there's both, right? It's possible that there's a failure to return when requested problem under 793D, right, and a gross negligence problem under F. I mean, I, you know, the, it's not clear to me based on what we know so far that either of those are off the table.
1: Yeah, it seems like D is the most likely fit here. The willful retention scenario fits the known public facts pretty well. And it's, it's pretty sweeping yeah. because it's it's not meant to be complicated, if you're right. not in if you once had access to national defense information and you no longer are supposed to have that, and you've nonetheless retained the information, the whole point of of that part of D 793D is to create criminal law compulsion to return the stuff when the government right. realizes you've got it. And frankly, and from that perspective, it's actually a bit generous to the yes. retainer. Yes. Because exactly. if you know only are retaining it's, it's interesting. It's not obvious why it shouldn't be uh, prosecutable, why it shouldn't be covered uh, until somebody knows to ask you for it, because a lot of times you're not going to know. The government's not going to know. No, 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 but
2: wait, but Bobby, hold on a second. Bobby, without without a government request, right, if I'm like the deputy CIA director for operations and I have a SCIF in my house, right, I'm knowingly retaining national security information.
1: Yeah, but if you have a SCIF, that's, that's on, that's that's an that's, intended and, and desired i'm talking about the scenario where you're not supposed to have the access period anymore but but see the, the problem is i don't, i think the way d is written right so e is for the people who are no longer authorized to oh, receive you're, you're saying like there's scenarios in which but but people who are former directors or former yeah. senior personnel who have a skiff at their house and can properly secure it yeah. and the yeah. government's happy to let them do so they're still read in they're still carrying the clearance. They're still which authorized. is why, which is why, which is why,
2: which is why without the government demand provides, though, right, you'd be prohibiting a lot of activity that we don't want to prohibit.
1: Yeah, I guess so. But I guess either way, we all agree that um, when the government does rightfully demand, yeah. say, hey, we know you've got this and I, to yeah. send it back. That's that's where I, I just the, why
2: I just want to add one more point. One more point before we oh, I'm sorry, Adam, I didn't mean to.
0: No, I, I was more. going to ask. I mean, are, looking at D, just kind of trying to parse through it. Um, Can we assume that a demand was made that Trump return this and that at this point, then he is willfully retaining?
1: Oh, for sure, because, right, that we have both the NARA request and And a subpoena to try to back it up when it wasn't fulfilled previously.
0: I guess, Mike, sorry, Sorry. I guess to be clear, I I was wondering, do we think that at some point between him leaving office and a year's worth of NARA negotiations in 2021, Was there some sort of less than a subpoena or investigatory request that he returned this? Would that just be part of the leaving office process for him?
2: I I I think, Adam, part of the question depends on at what point the Biden administration figured out that he had this stuff. Right. And so whether it was known all along that on his way out of office, he had taken these documents with him or whether it was discovered at some point after the fact. But um, th- th- just, I, I don't want to belabor the. I- I'd like to say two last things about the Espionage Act, not to sort of end the conversation, but just to sort of try to move us along a little bit. Because um, I, don't, I-, I don't think Adam and Ryan signed up for the double episode. Um, <laughs> but um, so the first is, you know, the Espionage Act is so old. I mean, Bobby, we've talked about this before, right? It predates the entire modern regime of national security classification, which is relevant because it actually doesn't incorporate, right, principles of classification into the statutory definitions. It just asks whether it's information relating to the national defense, national defense information, or NDI, right, as everyone calls it. Um, and it's not at all clear right, that NDI and classified information are coextensive. Indeed, right, there's actually some suggestion in the case law that NDI is a broader category um, than information that has been properly classified by executive order, which goes again to the point of why the fight over classification declassification may mostly be a red herring. Um, And the the second thing I would say is um, Rand Paul said over the weekend, you know, the statute's crazy broad. It's time to repeal the Espionage Act. Um, You know, I just want to say, like, (laughs) there are plenty of folks who have been arguing for 15 years, 20 years, um, 50 years, right? The canonical study of the Espionage Act was a 1973 article in the Columbia Law Review by Hal Edgar and Benno Schmidt. Um, that the statute is preposterously overbroad, that it should be reformed, that it should be broken out into different criminal statutes to prohibit different things. Um and it has principally been the Republicans, right, who have been historically opposed to those kinds of reforms. So once again, right, like hey, hey welcome uh, to the show everybody. To
1: defend Rand Paul, but I mean, I, I'm perfectly willing to believe that a libertarian like Rand Paul has always been a critic of this. He's not a libertarian. I, well, I think someone who takes the positions he takes in relation to government power, <laughs> it's no surprise he would say that. I, I, that's my limited defense of Rand Paul. There. Well, I'll just go back but, and say but the, but way, was, way, yeah. like the, the argument that it's crazy override. We just rehearsed why that is something that's a worthy topic for conversation as to subsection E because of its implications for journalists. But the idea that there's something weird or overreaching on the part of the government in saying that people shouldn't be able... To take the access they've gained to classified information, and that you shouldn't have any criminal penalties associated with willfully um, refusing to give the information back, or even worse, actually sharing it with others who are not entitled to receive it. Um, you know, outside the context of interactions with journalists, there it's an interesting topic, but let's not lose sight of the, the core business of the statute, which is, actu- which is actually espionage. So it's painting with an awfully broad brush to say the whole thing should go but either way what we've got here it looks like is somebody is probably pretty clearly on the hook for 793 d at least as i said earlier i don't know that it'll be so easy to pin that on trump except of course that 793 is a g provides conspiracy liability so if if what prosecutors can ultimately prove no they can't prove donald trump was Particularly in the weeds of the boxes, but if they can prove that he had directed his uh, team to retain these things, then that that'll probably pull him in as well. But just recognize there's definitely some problems of proof and going all the way up to chain to him. Uh, should we pivot to the next statute, Section 1519? Let's do it. Okay, destroying, altering, falsifying records in the context of a federal investigation or bankruptcy. So uh, do we have a predicate uh, federal investigation?
2: I mean, apparently we do. Um, So presumably, I mean, you know, the the subpoena, right, that was apparently not fully complied with appears to have been a grand jury subpoena. And so, you know, I guess the best best speculation based on the limited record such as it is, is that the argument was that um, President Trump, you know, by not being fully candid, about what materials were still in his possession in response to the grand jury subpoena, um, withheld or concealed, I think is the statutory term, um, concealed documents um, in a manner that obstructed an ongoing federal investigation.
1: Is there a, the, the word conceal is in there, so the, the predicates are if you alter the such documents, you destroy them, you mutilate them. If you conceal them, you cover up, you falsify, or you make a false entry in any record document, that that might actually do it too, right? A false entry in a return to the subpoena, perhaps, yep. Yep. saying that there's nothing left when in fact there was something left. I think yep. that might actually be the cleanest one, conceals a little, it seems to me a little bit trickier as, as a matter of semantics.
2: So I mean, but but I think I mean it's worth you know 1519. This is this is a chance to talk about the Yates case, right? So in 2015, right, there was a Supreme Court case about what the meaning of tangible object is in the statute, Um, and the question question was whether a fish is a tangible object within the meaning of the statute, and the Supreme Court split five to four, right, Um, and said no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: a fish is apparently not a tangible object, at least for purposes of 1519. And it's Ginsburg versus Kagan, so it's a lot of. I, I actually use that case yeah, whenever we have like case. admitted students or prospective students or like family day, as like, uh,
1: how can this be real? Do you think it's fair to say that that basically what's going on with the 1519 charge is it's sort of a uh, a second level charge, whereas 793d. Would be the the core business of just having and retaining these documents. Fifteen nineteen comes into play because they had at least because of the subpoena response and the incompleteness yes. or the inaccuracy of the now that we're into the investigation not being fully forthcoming. Is that yes. is that there? Yes. So so then that's it's good to pivot then to uh, section twenty seven hundred one um, unlawful access. I'm oh, sorry. Wait, did I screw that up? Where are we here with our 20, third
2: chart? 2071.
1: 2071. 2071. <laughs> I transposed the numbers. I went to the uh, Stored Communications Act out of habit. My bad. <laughs>
2: Freudian slip.
1: Seriously. Um, yeah, that's really funny that I did that. All right. So we got concealment, removal, or mutilation uh, uh, generally. And this is, of course, an exciting one because there are two provisions here, one of which includes as part of the, the punitive description, disqualification from holding office. So, Steve, you want to, or, or one of y'all want to unpack this? I mean, Mark, Eli- Mark
0: Elias got himself into some trouble. There was, uh, for suggesting Wait, that- Wait, what?
3: Mark, Mark Elias I- got himself <laughs> into some trouble?
0: So, I will, I will tread incredibly lightly and, and just say that I have seen in the Twitterverse that there is speculation that uh, this could prevent a future Trump run for office. Um, but the other side is that, you know, office would not actually pertain to Trump in this. I, one of the things I actually think is interesting about 2071 is that this is broader as it applies to all records, not just classified or national defense yep. information. Yes. Um, so I yes. think this is actually a particularly interesting statute to be included here.
2: I mean, 2071 and we should say 1519, right? Neither of those turn at all on whether the information at issue is classified, um, which again goes back to the, you know, why this is why the, that fight is a red herring. Um, you know, there I think that the, the, interesting about 2071. There's a, a I think a fair question about whether Congress can by statute, right, provide for the disqualification of the president. In a context in which it's not enforcing section 3 of the 14th amendment right in the context in which the Constitution itself does not provide for disqualification Um, So I I don't you know, I think it's a little bit um, (laughs) I guess I I would not assume that it's obvious that the answer to that question is yes Um, Right, but I guess it's just you know, I don't know what to say. I, I guess it's just like further wishful thinking. Um, but the, I mean, this does, guys, raise what to me is a bigger question, which is, is this actually about a criminal investigation or is this just about getting all this stuff back?
1: Well, it's both, right? It's not either or. It's, you know, right. God, right. But, but no, is, is
2: recovering all the material like right. sufficient to satisfy the relevant governmental authorities and sort of not pursue this further?
1: If I think it's really important people recognize by far the most likely explanation of why now, why this way? because they've been trying and trying to get these documents back. And he wasn't complying with what clearly includes some top secret documents. And at the end of the day, the, the first order of business is to get them out of Mar-a-Lago and back into a secure compartmentalized information facility. That's good. And you get to do that because of, in, through this tool because there are probable cause to believe this was all done in violation of criminal law. But the, the reason or the impetus to actually do it, it's I, don't think, I think you're right, it's not to build the criminal case to get the evidence for that purpose, although that's one of the byproducts, it's to re-secure the information before God knows who else goes into that space and accesses it. Hey, I have a statutory interpretation question for you guys here about 2071. In order, for, so 2071 really matters, especially because as Steve just said, it it obviates all the discussion about whether something was declassified or not. Because that that's not part of what's protected here. The documents that are protected here, the things you can't remove when you had custody of them, you can't remove them. Um, and thus its ability it, it comes into play when there's a thing that is quote filed or deposited with a clerk or officer of any court or in any public office or with any judicial or public officer. Is it? obvious that the kinds of documents that seem like they might be described here which are internally generated executive branch documents would count they certainly haven't been you know when you see the language filed or deposited with a clerk or officer of a court that sense of filing has this i'm an outsider i'm putting documents into the government's possession uh here it would have to be the public office or public officer that you're depositing documents with them. Is that how we would talk about it if they are, for example, intelligence community documents being shared internally? I, I wonder if there's a little space here for some eventual defendant, whoever that might be, to argue that 2071 is referring to other sorts of things than internal executive branch uh, IC related documents. What do you think? Is that is that being too picky? I just think it depends on what it is,
2: right? I mean, I think I think it's hard to speculate without knowing what we're talking about. Like, is it a copy of the PDB,
1: right? Is it, you know, well, a let's formal... take that because there's been some, yeah. you know, David, David Priest and others have said, you know, I wonder, you don't get to take those with you. Let's assume that's it. Would you, could the PDB, when it when it is in the White By House...
2: By the thing, PDB for listener, right, presidential daily brief, right? Right,
1: but so this is like the compendium, the daily compendium of the most relevant highly classified information the President in an analysis the President needs to see. Is that deposited with a public office or public officer of the United States? It, it's just, it's not immediately obvious to me that this statute is actually meant to encompass these sorts of internal security documents. So I
2: guess, I mean, I think the question is, how does it interplay with the President? I mean, the Presidential Records Act, right, was passed at least in part to create a depositing requirement. Right and to pass like a an archiving requirement that applies to certain kinds of presidential you know materials and so it's possible, Bobby, that like the depositing requirement here comes from another statute um, and that if this is information that the president was under a statutory obligation to deposit with the national archives, maybe that triggers the statute.
1: There may be a right drafting there. problem then because it all it's all written in past tense. It, it effectively, having yeah. been filed or having been deposited in here, unlike the situation where. Like yeah. Sandy Berger, you know, taking a document out of the archive where it was yeah. deposited. Right. This is, I think, a harder case. This is actually, I think, an interesting question of statutory interpretation. So interesting you all got very quiet when I put it out there. No,
2: I mean, I just – I don't think we ever get there. I mean, like, I, I, mean, I just I, – I, I'd be very – I mean, having nothing to do with what I think of former President Trump, I don't think, like – you know, it's one thing to do the search and recover the material. It's quite another thing to charge him criminally. I just, I, I feel like if they're well, again, I don't people... think it's
1: necessarily Trump that ends up getting charged here.
2: Yeah, but uh, twenty. I don't know. I, I maybe. I mean, it might be worth sort of flagging this context why nineteen twenty four isn't here, right? I mean, so you know. That. So the
1: offense. Wait, can we just put a pin in it though that the seven ninety three D offense? Somebody is in some big trouble because that seems pretty clearly yes. been violated. Yes. Uh, and then we'll come back to the idea that, well, no, no, Especially
2: Yes, especially if it turns out to be true that, like, a government lawyer represented perhaps – sorry, a, a lawyer for President Trump represented perhaps under penalty of perjury, right, that they had fully complied with the grand jury. And
1: that person's going to be on the hook for 1519, among other things, perhaps.
2: And 1001.
1: Yeah, exactly, which, had, which can be and probably would then be added later. Yeah. Um, so false statements in the context of an investigation, 1001 charges are – yeah, that's ubiquitous. I think 2071 actually might be a little tricky if and when somebody's prosecuted under that one. Depends on the document, as you say. But Steve, you point out there's a there's a potentially relevant charge that's not here. Tell us about that.
2: Um, so uh, 18 U.S.C. 1924, which a lot of people love talking about because one of the things that happened during the Trump administration was that Congress passed and President Trump signed um, into law a statute making this offense even more serious of a felony, changing the maximum sentence. Um, so this statute says, whoever being an officer, employee, contractor, or consultant in the United States, and by virtue of that office, etc., becomes possessed of documents or materials containing classified information, knowingly removes such documents or materials without authority and with the intent to retain such documents or materials at an unauthorized location, shall be fined or imprisoned, blah, 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 blah. So basically, this is the, like, wrongful removal of classified information statute. It's like this one's supposed to be, like it's not strict liability, but stricter liability than the Espionage Act, um, right, where it doesn't matter whether you knew or had reason to believe the information would harm the United States if it got out. Just if you wrongfully, if you took classified information that you weren't allowed to take,
1: you were breaking the law. So why isn't this one in the list? Cuz it seems like it has a lot of potential application if 793d is there, right. it seems like almost a cleaner way to make the same argument.
2: So I think there are two I think there are two reasons. The first is I think there's a fight over whether the president's an officer. Um right? And the second is I think this, you know, in, incorporates the entire fight over the president's classification authority in a way that none of the other three statutes
0: do.
1: Yeah let's, right? okay. he, yeah. yeah, let's take those in reverse order. A really important point about how this one is very much, this one, section 1924, that's not mentioned in the warrant, which could be added later on, but it's not there now, is only about formally classified information. Whereas what we were talking about earlier, 793D, is about the broader or potentially looser category of national defense information, okay? Now, what about this business that the president's not an officer? That makes sense from an Article 2 geek perspective. We understand it, but explain it to normal human beings listening to this. How's the president not an officer?
2: So there is a whole sort of universe of scholarship um, about whether the president's actually, so the appointments clause refers to officers of the United States. Right. And the Appointments Clause provides the mechanism for the appointment of officers in the United States. And of course, the president's not appointed. And so there's a yeah, whole sort of officer. So there's a whole line of scholarship that the president and the vice president, because they are not appointed, they are not officers in of the United States within the meaning of Article two of the Constitution. And therefore, when Congress uses the term officer, it is assumed that Congress is incorporating the constitutional understanding.
1: Um, and That's assuming a have, lot I, about, yes. it's putting a lot of weight on the Article Two language. I, the just, clause.
2: But also, I mean, you're seriously telling me that the only two officers who are expressly provided for in the Constitution are the only two people who are not officers? Like that's that's right. where this is like that's that's, that's that, where this ends up. A weakness
1: in that argument, that uh, they obviously were conceived of in looser terms as officers, and they're certainly officers relating to the United States. It's just that their offices don't require uh, any congressional directive on how right. appointments work. Because right. their offices are directly created in the text itself. Right. So, so right. So,
2: I mean, I think we can have, we can we there's we can accept there's a difference between constitutional officers and statutory officers. It doesn't mean you're not an officer. But right. th- then there's the whole, but then there's the classification fight. So so should we spend a couple
1: minutes on classification yeah. authority? So especially we'd be hearing about this if 1924 was charged, but even though it wasn't, we're still hearing about it. Even though nothing we've talked about up to this point actually turns on whether something's formally classified or not. But nonetheless, we've heard a lot about some, well, sometimes strongly stated and sometimes extremely strongly stated theories about um, when and how the president, as the, and I think everyone agrees this is true, as the original classification authority, the president, whoever that is at that moment in time, which is a critical distinction, um, is the one who decides ultimately what is classified, usually not done on a, retail basis, usually done on a wholesale basis by creating rules that empower others to make those calls. But the president's the ultimate source of that authority and it's all expressed through the executive order framework. Um, can uh, Ryan or Adam either of you guys uh, seen some of the ways that the president's defenders have suggested that well never mind there's no problem here, anything classified wasn't actually classified at all notwithstanding the markings. Let's see. Uh, Ryan, can you hear I think we lost your audio. Sorry. Okay. Steve, you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I'll just
2: so, so I think the, the, there's a lot of public confusion out there in the world. Um, so, yes, the president is the original classification authority. Yes, the president has the power, with the one exception of the Atomic Energy Act, which we'll talk about a little bit, to declassify anything he wants to declassify for any reason, even if those reasons are really fracking stupid. Um, The problem is that those two points by themselves do not get us to, therefore, the president can just say at any, like, those don't tell us the procedure for declassification, and they don't tell us how declassification is supposed to be memorialized. And so, you know, two of the more extraordinary claims that I've heard in the last few days are from two people who ought to know better. So Culley Stimson um, said, I think on Friday, right, that the president, if he just, you know, if he wants to declassify something, he can declassify it without telling anybody. He can just think it, um, right? Which is like, you know, the, I I, I, I think it, therefore it is.
0: And think um, right, logic cash- with that, yeah. right? Because if the president just thinks it and it's right. somehow doesn't, does, um, declassified. Well, then what was the point of declassifying it? Because no one Right. No one will know. No one will know.
2: Right. Um, And then I think and then Cash Patel, I think, was on either Fox News or Newsmax, right? Talking about how, you know, the president can just point at a pile of documents and say I've declassified all of them. Trump himself put out the statement saying he had a standing order that anything he took with him to Mar-a-Lago during his presidency was automatically declassified. I mean, this is just... This is all nonsense. This is not how, like, one can believe the president has almost plenary declassification authority and still believe that he can't just wish it, Um, right? And and let's just say, and and if he could, right? And if the answer is yes, every single piece of national security information Trump took with him to Mar-a-Lago during his presidency is now declassified, holy cow! Like, I mean, how is that a defense?
1: So we'll note and set aside the, you know, it's, it's madness to, to be reckless without declassification works. Um, and by the way, let's emphasize something Steve, you said earlier, which is that, or Adam, you said it. It's the information. It's the knowledge that's the classified secret. Right. So, it's not that this one document you'd classify that document, but the information itself remains secret. Um, so, that necessarily carries with it this idea of some degree of affirmative action that actually gets communicated to somebody so that anyone could possibly know that all the other documents or records containing that same information or the, the minds containing it would be able to know that it's no longer protected. Um, I think it's fair to say that there is some sort of need to communicate so that the least plausible thing is the I think it therefore it is that's that's entirely implausible. There's got to be some action. I think it's trickier, no matter how ridiculous and awful it would be for any responsible authority to just say anything I happen to carry out of here is just automatically declassified. I mean, that's that's madness. But it's less obvious since that is an action that is communicated to people and, and thus satisfies that initial step of having to get out of the president's brain into the world of communicated ideas, it does do that in a blunderbuss way. So is it clear that that wouldn't have any legal effect if a president, let's say Joe Biden decides, you know, that does sound yeah. pretty convenient. Um, so when I get on the when I get on the Acela, um, anything that comes in the bag with me, is uh, automatically declassified i don't want to have to just restate it every time it's just automatic if I take it out so
3: I, I think
2: i think i think if you listen i think if the president wrote out an executive order that said that right and signed it and published it then it would be incredibly stupid and legally valid um
1: Right. It seems to be so if it's all done orally, assume for the sake of argument, it was really done, which I think is a whole separate. Question. Right. So because I mean, I think the, so this goes back to the question of
2: whether this goes to the broader question of whether presidents are bound by executive orders. Right. So there is an executive order on national security classification. The current one is executive order 13526. Um, it was signed by President Obama, Bobby, I think in 09, I think, or 10, early, yeah. right, early in the Obama administration. Trump never actually issued his own classification EO that, that we know of. <laughs> um, and and the EO creates declassification procedures. Um, now, the president, of course, is free to rescind an EO. He's free to override an EO. He's free to, you know, but he can't do it sub silentio. I mean, this is why, you know, there was the Second Circuit case, from 2020, where the Second Circuit says, like, when the president goes out and says something stupid that probably discloses the existence of a covert CIA program, that's not actually declassifying it because he has to go through procedures to declassify information, notwithstanding his broad
1: authority to declassify. I'm not sure it's that easy. I think that would be a, a wise system that called for this procedural regularity. But I'm, I'm having trouble identifying what the source of the binding authority insofar as the original, the the presidential action at point in time one is to say, you know there shall be no grapes served at the White House. And that's said in 1980, it's in an executive order. Um, And then in 2022, President Biden says, well, I'm president now, and I think we shall serve grapes. Obviously, clearer, cleaner, and better if it rescinds the executive order, promulgates one of his own, writes down the codicil, whatever, but if his, But if the power he's exercising in doing those things is ultimately just his article authority to do as he wishes on the question of grape service, uh, his action is a is nonetheless an expression of that same power. Right. Like I'm having trouble seeing where he's legally bound. I mean, you can imagine there being a statute that tries to impose such a process and a statute saying uh, once a president takes such steps, it's sticky. And combining presidential authority with congressional authority, we're going to make it an offense to act in violation of a prior executive order unless there's a new one to replace and supplant it, because that will create transparency in government. I think it's, you know, in many ways, that could be a good thing. Um, but we don't have something like that. And so I don't know that I quite agree that it's legally void for the president to act in violation of an executive order without Somehow memorializing that in a way that's effectively of a repeal. Then what's the point of executive orders for everyone else but the president? The entirety of the executive I, branch. I have I, I have, I have real from that. that I
2: have real trouble accepting that a president can um, uh, secretly, silently, and with no memorialization to anyone rescind executive orders. I mean, like Bobby, how would the next president, who has the same constitutional entitlement to do, you know, to to, to have his own prerogatives carried out, how would he know which executive orders the
1: former president had chosen not to follow and had chosen to follow? Insofar as that argument has force, I think it at least takes us as far as the idea that, sticking with my silly grape example, that when Biden decides to serve grapes, it, it does not actually undo the prior order except for that moment for that action. But I still have trouble seeing what is the source of law that says that he has somehow acted illegally. I mean, what law did he violate? The executive order? The president yes. bound by the prior president? What is says? Where does it say that the president can only undo the action of a prior president that's expressed in one formal way by reaching an equal level of formality later? I, again, I think it's it's a good idea. It sounds like good government, but I don't see where that's legally required anywhere.
2: I mean, I I guess it just seems to me that, like, what is the point of having the president with a constitutional obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed if he can just ignore the laws he doesn't like? Right. I mean,
1: the executive branch is the 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 endless array of personnel in the executive branch. They're the ones clearly and still bound. And I think you've made a, a good logical argument for why any sort of exemptive de facto action doesn't have any undoing power because no one else knows it's undone. That doesn't make logically any sense, but I still can't see where Biden with the grapes in 2022 could be said to have acted. But, in I mean, da- I community. mean, down
2: that road lies anarchy, because how would you ever prove the particular information was or was not declassified by the president if there's no requirement of memorialization? I mean, so first, what you're saying is that the Second Circuit was wrong in 2020, which I think was worth saying. Like, people are like, well, Steve says this.
1: No, the Second Circuit said it.
2: And so if you're
1: saying yeah, that t- the president, Tell me again actually, about the- t- I don't, I'm not familiar with the case you're talking about there. Go back to that and tell that me the, about that
2: it. the president doesn't declassify information just by saying it out loud.
1: Yeah, right. That, the, I, the whole, the I do whole, think I do think you're right about that. That that would have to be wrong, if if this question I'm raising. But why? Well, that was my if, question to you. But but why? No, no, no. no, 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 no but hold on. A second. I mean, so 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 you think so? Your position is, that I, pres- didn't, is I, that I didn't say anything about my position. I'm trying to test the argument. All right. The position you are defending,
2: right, is one in which all of those cl- cases about about presidential statements are, and, and attribution and acknowledgement are wrong, because by that logic, the president, by acknowledging these programs publicly, by talking about them publicly, is declassifying them, right? I mean, I just, I don't see, and, and in any event, how could you have an administrable legal regime where a former president could say, I classified that information, but I can't prove it to you because I classified it in my head?
1: I, my loose sense of this, and, and again, I'm just trying to test the boundaries of the argument and really wanting to know what the source of legal constraint is whereby a president exercising Article II power disempowers future presidents from acting in violation of what the earlier president said. Um, I do think that it sounds like from what you're saying that earlier uh, Second Circuit case would be inconsistent with what I'm talking about. You mentioned a moment ago a bunch of other cases, I think I heard you say. Are, are I mean, they, yes, there are there, there
2: are lots of cases holding that just because presidents or other government officials say things by accident in public to acknowledge the existence of secret programs or other secret information. Oh,
1: I misunderstood you then. No. So look, if if a president has said something without any intent to declassify it, but by being loose with what they're talking about or otherwise, I feel like that's, a, that's just a very different topic. I thought you were saying that a president had used. <laughs> their words in an effort to declassify something you were saying that was no but
2: so but so what stops the president who sort of speaks out of school from saying well it wasn't you know uh, if i wanted to declassify it i'd tell you like i mean i just bobby you're you're the, well, the, well, the position you guys are defending,
1: you're adam and ryan you guys are getting off way too easy here jump in i just think this is
0: nuts <laughs> yeah I, I tend to agree with steve on this and interestingly enough jumping slightly out of the conversation we're having right now but pulling this back maybe toward um the ongoing investigation now i mean the the position of the trump administration, well at least of mark meadows when donald trump attempted or purported to declassify a bunch of documents related to the Mueller investigation in 2020 they said you know the presidential tweet declassifying things was not self-executing so i'm trying to figure out what the bounds of that declassification authority would be, um, it it seems that whatever we land on, there has to be a more formal process than just something the president hopes or wishes, even if it's in an executive order.
2: In retrospect, but I mean, I mean, there's no contemporaneous if there were contemporaneous evidence that Trump had intended that there was the standing order. That he claims existed, which, by the way, standing orders I would assume would be memorialized somewhere.
1: No, that's right. Right, and, and to be clear, I, it sounds very dubious. I mean, maybe they'll they'll no doubt be able to find somebody. To say, like, but Bobby, oh, yeah, but my, heard pro- that. my
2: problem with the position that you are defending, even if it's not your position, um, is that there's no universe in which that's a distinction with a difference, right? Because like Trump can say, "Yes, I had a standing order in my head," right? And and in your, and in, and in under under the position you're espousing. Right, even if he took no steps to memorialize that while he was present, which by the way is the only time when he has the authority to do this, right? That still is sufficient to defeat a claim that information was classified for which there was no I mean, let me put it this way, Bobby. How about FOIA? Okay. Yeah, exactly. I FOIA I FOIA, right, the standing order to which Trump has referred, right? Can he invoke exemption one?
1: I don't know about the FOIA thing, I think it takes it in an extra layer of complexity, but let's come back to a constantly recurring scenario where the president is in conversation head-to-head with a foreign head of state. Presidents off the cuff in those settings, not just in the Trump scenario where you think, oh my God, what's happening, but in past scenarios with more responsible individuals, can and historically have chosen to share classified information that they decide to act in that way and doing it. They don't They don't issue executive orders about that. Um, I don't know that that ever even gets formally memorialized. In But they're not to in the information. They're reading those people in. But
0: what about a situation I don't, like that? I,
1: I think that's an interesting question. I don't think that's right, that the formal conception of why that's OK is that it's being read in. Maybe it is. But I don't know. I don't. I, I, I mean, the, the difference is, can I,
2: can I, done. can I FOIA the information if, if he read Bobby, the President
1: Biden reads I, I, you. I into know very his, little about how FOIA works, so I really don't think I can answer that. Dimension. But I'm, I'm just, I'm just
2: pointing out the problem, right? Which is the difference between so, President Biden, Bobby, reads you into this super cool new intelligence program, right? They're designing a Heisenberg compensator, right? They're <laughs> finally going to solve that pesky Heisenberg principle, um, and, and, you know, he so by reading you in has he declassified that information so that I can now seek it publicly as a member of the public? Or has he just given you the requisite clearance, which he also has the authority to to control so that you now have access to information that no member of the public does?
1: Yeah, I think that that makes a ton of sense and that's a much better way to do it. It's not obvious to me that that's been the conceptualization of information that gets shared, but I'm persuaded that that's a good argument for why that's one. i got one you got one i'm with you on that if you if you share it with someone else you're effectively doing a read-in in a de facto way um yeah that's pretty good but look um it remains the case what i think about this at bottom is that this is an area of law that's under formalized badly i continue to think that there is nothing that makes it really clear that the that every executive order is permanently sticky unless and less than until there's a formal published Retraction and iteration of it. I think that in practice, I can't prove it, but I suspect that in practice, in history over the past 20, 30, 40 years, there's endless examples, endless examples of informal exceptions carved out by action. Maybe maybe no words expressed at all. Maybe it's stated as such. I think that probably happens all the time. Some listeners will know it'll be interesting to get some feedback on that on whether people who've had that kind of experience might say, "Yeah, I know, like sometimes there's there's it might be memorialized we did something in violation of it, but no one thought you had to formally retract that That's kind of where I'm coming from. I think that that sort of thing's common
3: don't don't you think that's sort of necessary with the classification process varying so much from agency to agency. the. Uh, it's so common for things to be classified after the fact we're talking about an extreme example in terms of declassification under a president like Trump. Uh, but I think that if you talk about the norms of the classification process, it, it doesn't seem practical to to have uh, the extreme rigidity that you're talking about when you're talking about a moving target in terms of what is classified.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that Ryan, your your comment highlights that we got to be careful not to conflate the question of how do you express the desire to declassify, versus whether one is changing the rule framework embodied in the executive orders. Um, well, look, let's let's not lead the readers to uh, the listeners too far astray. The statutes that are referenced in the in the warrant application don't none of them turn on this. They don't turn well, on this. I mean, that, that, I mean I that's you. the
2: other part. Is that is that I mean, I think I think this is all a distraction. Like even if we total, assume for argument that Trump dotted every i and crossed every t. That actually, I think, doesn't change his liability here one way.
1: Maybe that highlights the, the value of having the national defense information category as a conceptually distinct category from classified information right there.
2: Yes, that was that was why in 1917, 30 years before the first executive order on classification, you know, ah, yes. it that way. Um, can I say one last thing on this point before we lose the thread? So we, we've alluded a couple times to the Atomic Energy Act of 1954. Um, and I just want to sort of throw it out there that the, the Atomic Energy Act stands alone As to my understanding, the only time Congress has ever claimed for itself um, the authority to create categories of national security classification and control how those categories control the substance of the categories and how they're enforced. Um, And it seems to me that there are two things to say about that. One, yes, it's a hyper specific category of information. Um, And, you know, I think there's reason to believe that at least some of what was in Mar-a-Lago was not right that maybe even most, if not all, of what was in Mar-a-Lago was not information covered by the Atomic Energy Act. But two, there is a common claim made especially by folks who are either supporters of President Trump or former executive branch lawyers that the president's constitutional authority when it comes to national security classification is both plenary and exclusive, um, meaning that it's not subject to congressional constraint. And I just—I have always thought that the Atomic Energy Act is a pretty powerful counterexample to that claim. I, I don't think
1: it—I
2: don't think it matters here because Congress has not tried to rein in, right, any of the president's Article II classification authority. I just think it could, like, like I—I I think it is not beyond Congress's constitutional authority to actually provide more statutory regulation of this entire space than I think is often assumed
1: so i I think it's true that the atomic energy act like my opinion is it's constitutional and it's probably very fortunate for uh donald trump and those around him that it could be the case that nothing in these materials is uh q clearance material uh i think that the question of whether it follows that congress could if it was so motivated and could get it enacted into law could therefore set the boundaries the, in a way that would, in all circumstances, constrain the president's ability to disclose things would run up in some fact settings against the president's foreign affairs powers and commander in chief powers, as to particularly uh, particularly relevant for those functions, instances in which the president's ability to share information might be really important. It's very easy to see, for example, in, so in the midst of World War II, things that FDR needed to do or might've wanted to do, with uh, various allies, if the statute wasn't drafted in a way that enabled him to do it and he felt it needed to be done to prosecute the war effort, you can imagine all sorts of ways in which it might seem like, okay, in that setting, the president's Article II authorities probably triumph. But, but all that is to say is it becomes a Justice Jackson type of analysis, right? A steel seizures type of analysis. None of, it's, none of it's presented here because we're not dealing, I think, with anything that presents that question.
2: No. No, but I just think, I mean, it's just, there there are some pretty casual assertions out there that this is all not just an Article II authority, but an indefeasible Article II authority. And I just think that, that's, that the evidence is to the contrary.
1: So uh, we should do a little lightning round on some of the other Trump-related uh, legal developments of the past 24 hours. Uh, you know, there was something about Giuliani. I was in orientation all day. Tell me about what happened.
2: Adam, you want to take that one?
1: I think, I
0: think Ryan's our, our expert on... Uh... These are Giuliani.
1: America's man. Now we're going to go to uh, National Security Law Podcast. Giuliani correspondent, right, <laughs>
3: right, uh, God, God help me uh, if I'm the Giuliani guy. But uh, so, so Four Seasons, in, Ryan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so today, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, it came out that he was informed that he's the target um, of, of a criminal investigation in Fulton County, in Georgia, over. Uh, the election uh, fraud uh, case being investigated there. Uh, it is not yet clear uh, exactly what the charges would be if they are brought. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, he will be appearing before a grand jury, I believe, next week. Uh, it's, I would speculate that he will not be saying a whole lot of note when he appears before the grand jury, but it has been confirmed that he will be Appearing, I would I would expect a lot of uh, pleading the fifth, but but we will see how that goes.
1: Oh, that's fascinating! I had no idea. Yeah, it sounds like uh, some of his uh, shenanigans associated with claims about Georgia election integrity, in particular, are going to come back to Biden here.
2: And and speaking of just the Georgia election investigation, another interesting development there is with regard to Senator Graham. Um, I think the news broke last week that Senator Graham had been subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury um, in the Georgia or the wherever the panel of inquiry in the Georgia investigation. Um, Senator Graham had tried to quash the subpoena in federal district court. The district court ruled against him. Senator Graham, I think, announced today that he intends to appeal to the 11th Circuit. I mentioned this just to say that it's not hard to imagine if the 11th Circuit also rules against Senator Graham, that this will be a fascinating little shadow docket drama um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Senator Graham in that context went to the Supreme Court.
1: Volume two of the Shadow Docket by Steve. Well, I,
2: so I, I think I've got I think I've got one more like the um the book is with the, cop- stuff in. the book is with the copy editors right now, so I think no, I get I, I bet one your, more bet your publishers like Steve Vladick, cut it out. Just no boss. Well, uh, that's not up to me. How about the Supreme Court? Supreme Court, cut it out, no moss.
1: It, it could be our listeners who are saying, "Cut it out, no moss." Well, so there's that. So should
2: we? Should Should, we, should we get
1: frivolous? Uh, well, let's say let's do a quick lightning round. We've got um, the very important and, and weighty one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul, the the mess of the evacuation. Um, Ryan, Adam, do you guys have any reflections on on that one year out?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I hope there are people reflecting on the gravity of what happened. Um, I grew up, you know, I'm 34. And so I've, our, our adventure in Afghanistan was most of my adult life. And so it was surprising to see it come to an end. And I do think it was nothing short of tragic to see the way that our involvement came to an end. And, and, I hope that there are people out there who participated in the evacuation efforts. I hope there are, um, you know, our soldiers who supported getting as many folks out of there as possible. I hope there are interpreters in Afghanistan who know that um, there are people thinking of their tremendous, tremendous sacrifice and um, they may not have gotten the ending they deserved
1: well said well said ryan
3: anything uh i think i think that adam summed it up well uh, you know we we came of age uh watching uh that conflict really our our entire childhoods into our our adult lives and uh, i think uh a year out looking uh fr- from the end of that conflict the formal end of that conflict looking at uh you know the the state of the region. I think uh, I'm personally grateful for all of the work that went into what was a chaotic uh, you know period a, a year ago. ultimately, you know glad glad with uh, grateful for the work that went in to make that happen. You're here. you're here.
1: um before we turn to frivaldi, uh, we noted when we were prepping the show that uh, with Brittany Griner's conviction in Russia, some of the media framing has been that, okay, now that that stage has been passed, the diplomatic exchange that seems inevitably on the horizon here where Victor Bout probably gets to go free at last, um, and and at least Brittany, if not other Americans, get to come home in exchange, um, raised sort of an interesting question considering that people like Victor Bout are in fact (laughs) criminally convicted and serving prison sentences you know, what's the legal mechanism or the institutional mechanism through which the executive branch can cut a deal that springs them loose? Uh, Steve, do you know how that works? So first of all, this, is, this is a for good a chance. Friend. This is a, this is a, this is a, this is a ooh, you
2: and Brittany Griner are friends. Can I get an autograph? I wish. <laughs> you know, she's no. my height. Brittany <laughs> Griner, 6'8". Um, so, um, the, the short, I mean, first, it's worth stressing. This is this is a good moment to plug one of, I think, the most interesting offices in DOJ, the Office of International Affairs, um, which has a very generic name but does a whole lot of very interesting stuff. Um, and this is, I think, part of their bailwick as well. So listen, I mean, federal prisoners, right, are subject to pardons and commutations by the president, um, right? They don't need to go to court. And so I think, you know, the legal apparatus here is if a deal is made, you know, the president writes a commutation that says, I am commuting the rest of your sentence, um, right? Or I am, you know, um, with your consent transferring you to place X to serve the rest of your sentence, right? I mean, it depends on how the, the specific terms are, are, are written. But I suspect that, you know, a lot of this is accomplished through the president's, you know, clemency power um, as a way of basically conditioning and, and affecting releases of federal prisoners without any judicial process.
1: I was really hoping you were going to say that so what they do is there's this super secret squad that goes into the uh, <laughs> facility in question. They kind of tap him on the shoulder. They give him this quick costume change of room and they go oh, that out. way. I, yes, exactly. You know, it's all good.
2: And Tom, parachute. Tom Cruise parachutes in, oh, right? You know, Mission
1: Impossible style, yes. <laughs>
2: like with the well, – he gets almost to the floor and then he waves his arms so he doesn't hit the floor right from the That's original you, M.I. That movie. is
1: how you do these things. Yes. Uh, hey guys, let's let's switch to frivolity. And for those who, tend by to the way, off,
2: the Mets the Mets are losing ten to one. So we'll come back.
1: <laughs> we'll come back. Um, let's talk about one uh, L advice. Ryan and Adam, you guys have been through the ringer. What is it that the one Ls, both the Texas law and everywhere else, ought to be hearing? Ought to be thinking about right now, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the number one piece of advice that I received. Coming into one L that that was helpful to me and and I think helpful to a lot of my classmates is the more you treat it like a job the the more successful you're going to be uh, and that means starting your day at a certain time and finishing it at a certain time you know I think treating it like like an eight to six thirty kind of a job and you know when finals get a little bit closer you know extend that a little bit um, I think sets you up for success and and then I think the number two thing uh, that I would point to is uh, your, your law degree is, is a lot more flexible than I think a lot of people showing up uh, at law school like to recognize or typically recognize. And I think coming in open minded, uh, talking to a lot of people uh, in your class and, and your professors and, you know, through through, uh, you know, the uh, law school's network uh, is just going to put you in a better position to end up uh, in a career that's the right fit for you. Uh, so that's, that's what I would pass along.
1: That's excellent. Adam, what's your words of wisdom?
0: Yeah, something, um, something I shared, I was, I was a TQ, so a teaching assistant in the first year writing program. And so I repeated this, um, a few times, but it, it was important for me and led to some of my opportunities. And so I'll share that. Be conscious of your reputation. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you need to be, um, a tool or, or overly concerned about being popular or, or anything like that, but, but be conscious of your reputation. Be the person who's willing to share their notes. Be the person who's willing to uh, take a walk around the building if one of your classmates had a bad day. Be the person who pats someone on the back after a, a, a botched cold call. Um, those sorts of things matter and they they really do add up and your reputation gets around your class um probably gets around with your professors and i would add that um if you're going to texas in particular um the community is is fairly small and tight-knit and so you know your reputation will precede you it'll also precede you in your jobs and uh you're in a professional school and and those things do start coming to the fore um quite a bit earlier than than when you were an undergrad, and so being aware of the fact that you're going to need to count on some semblance of a professional reputation, you know, within the next year or so, um, is something that will carry you a long way if you'll if you'll just abide by the the notion of being a good human. The other thing I would add in is do pro bono. Um, you are entering a a profession that at times gets a pretty bad rap um and so it's up to us to make sure that it we overcome that we overcome the stereotypes of, of lawyers that are negative um i would throw out there that that there are times where you may be deeply deeply disappointed in law school whether it be you know grades or not getting a job or not getting an internship or clerkship or what have you um your ability to use your legal skills and your qualification even as a law student on day one Um, matters and will allow you to have a really positive impact on people's lives. And so do the pro bono, remember why you came to law school. um, And at the end of the day, it's all worth it. And when you need to definitely get some ice cream. (laughs) I don't
1: think I can improve upon that. How about you, Steve?
2: I I just want to add one thing. I I mean, I think, I think what what Ryan and Adam said are such great lead pieces of advice. I, I just have one more which is be wary of generic answers um and i mean that in every like be wary of generic answers on exams be wary of generic answers to like what's the best way to study be wary of generic answers like how should i do x right like every person is different when it comes to how they study and how they work every professor is different with regard to how they teach and what they expect right like i mean the it's the infinite diversity and infinite combinations right the the you know there is a, the the be very very mindful of sort of being nuanced and specific and avoiding one size fits all answers because you have to do what works for you and what works for the specific classes you're in and you know those answers are going to vary a lot more than you might appreciate at first blush
1: i should have just wheeled you guys out at orientation this morning that was excellent um,
2: you did oh, wheel me out at orientation this morning
1: <laughs> yeah but on the wrong topics apparently no i'm just kidding <laughs> steve did great earlier uh Ryan, Adam, thank you so much for being on the show and for seriously. law Fellowships, that was awesome too. Yeah, um, it's really, really cool. I mean, having seen you guys both as you know, as one else yourself at one point, and now looking at you, one of you already out the door, the other one soon to be all polished up and professional. It's pretty great. That's the bit that's a big satisfaction to being on the professor side of this.
0: Yep.
3: Thank you all so much for having us. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank no, you all. And, yeah,
0: and also a huge thank you to, to TLF. What they do is yes. fantastic. And so, uh, and really important. Um, new one else going to Texas. Definitely make sure you attend the TLF auction.
2: So, all right. bid <laughs>
0: um,
1: on this particular opportunity.
2: He's Ryan Brown. He's Adam Goodrum. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vlodic. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, and all I can say is, um stay safe out there and try not to declassify anything in your head.
1: Any sign offs from you guys?
0: If only I had a declassification wand, it'd be great.
1: Du-du-du-du-du. Ryan, do you have a catchphrase?
3: Stay away from trial by combat. That's all I got. <laughs> and on that note, adios. <laughs> uh, yes.